We would like to advise that the following program may contain real news, occasional philosophy, and ideas that may offend some listeners. This is The Future This Week. On Sydney Business Insights, I'm Sandra Peter. And I'm Kai Rima. Every week we get together and look at the news of the week. We discuss technology, the future of business, the weird and the wonderful, and things that change the world. Okay, let's start. Let's start. Today on The Future This Week, angry women, more automation, and the future of work. I'm Sandra Peter, I'm the director of Sydney Business Insights. I'm Kai Rima, professor at the Business School and leader of the Digital Structure Research Group. So Kai, what happened in the future this week? Well, I can tell you what happens today. It is International Women's Day and we're trying something new on the future this week. We've got a guest on. So we've got Ray Cooper with us, who is a professor here at the University of Sydney Business School. And she's also the co-director of the Women Work and Leadership Research Group. And we thought, who better to have here on International Women's Day? So we've asked her to bring the first story for today. Hey, how are you? So my story that I thought we'd start with today is an article by a journalist called Georgie Dent writing for Women's Agenda, which is an outlet that often covers issues around gender equality. And the title of the article is Confession, Why I Still Hate International Women's Day, which perhaps is a little bit controversial for today, but I'll get to why I chose it. So in the article, she goes through all of the issues we're still facing in terms of gender equality and inequality in workplaces, in society and in politics. And that includes things like the gender pay gap, the fact that we still face a range of gender-based disrespect and behaviour at work for women, including things like sexual harassment. She has a look at things such as the real scourge that we still face around violence against women and the fact that 69 women were killed last year by their partner and a range of issues that really say to us we still have a very big gender-based disadvantage and gender-based problems at work in our economy and in our society. So why does she say she hates International Women's Day? Georgie really argues that what we've turned International Women's Day into is kind of a cupcake parade and a day when we pop on our business suits, our pantsuits and go to corporate events to celebrate how women are achieving across different occupations, professions in organisations. And I think what she's saying is that by doing that, we are kind of lying to ourselves that women have reached the pinnacle of organisations, that women are making the inroads that we thought that we should, you know, a generation ago, but that in fact, we're still facing those same old problems. And in fact, what we should be doing is being filled with what she says is resentment and simmering rage on International Women's Day. And we should actually be, instead of eating cupcakes, we should be fighting the power. And it's not just her, right? Anne Summers has said the same thing. This is not to say that full equality has been achieved, let alone Nirvana. There are some still some stubborn holdouts a woman has never been treasurer or head of the treasury or the defence department or been chief of the defence force or even head of one of the armed services. But the most glaring and certainly the most topical exception to this seemingly inexorable march towards equality has been the severe partisan imbalance in the numbers of women in federal parliament. Of the 75 women in federal parliament today, just 19 are liberals and two represent the national party. Women are 46.3% of the ALP's representations, but only 22.9% of the Liberals and just 9.5% of the Nationals. 
the Liberal and National parties do worse than any other parties in federal parliament when it comes to representation of women. In fact, not just worse, far worse. Every other party in the parliament has a significantly greater representation of women than the, current, than the parties that currently form the federal government. So these are sobering numbers, and if we consider the federal parliament to be the representation of the people, then clearly this government does not represent all the people. And I can understand, you know, why you're angry. Do you hate Women's Day, Ray? I actually don't. I hate International Women's Day. I actually think there's a place for us to be celebrating our achievements. But I also think you can celebrate at the same time as actually really trying to push for action. So I think it's important to have at least one of the 365 days of the year where we actually talk about women and their experience, what they want and what they need. But I don't think we should just have one day. I so think that should be all of the time. How do we make sure that this is not going to be Groundhog Day, that we come together every year, do it over and over again, and as Georgina says, have women in their spare time organise these events on International Women's Day to remind us that we still have the same problem? Yeah, well, it's a very big problem and things are not moving as quickly as we'd like in most areas that I do my research on. The gender pay gap is not moving. In fact, Parliament has gone backwards, right? Parliament is absolutely going backwards. At the moment, we are sitting at 50th in the world in terms of gender representation in our federal parliament, whereas in the mid-90s, we were 15th in the world. That's absolutely going in the wrong direction. So let's talk about gender pay gap maybe. So the article mentions the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report, where we remain 202 years off gender parity. 202 years, that's quite a lot. And that seems to be up from two years ago, where we were 169 years off. What are we doing well and what are we doing badly? One of the areas that we're doing very well, actually, is in the education of girls and women. And that is the only area where we have a gender gap in favour of women. So women's attainment is much higher than men across all educational fields. The problem is where that's not translating is into areas in the labour force. So that's around pay. It's around access to good jobs that are also flexible jobs. It's around men having access to jobs that are flexible to allow them to take part in their families, perhaps in the way that they would like to. And it's around things like seniority for women in jobs at the top of organisations and in senior board roles and those kinds of issues. So we're doing really well in education and that actually is something that we should celebrate. That's a choice that women are making about investing in themselves and it's choices that educational institutions like the University of Sydney are making in investing in women. But you know, you need to look at it and say, if women are not getting the payback on that investment, that's a real loss for us. If they hit the labour market and are not making the most of what they've invested in, what we've invested in as educational institutions and also governments, you know, taxpayers, that's a real loss for us. So some of the wheels come off after women enter the workforce. Right? Yeah. So because the better education, and that's a great achievement and a great outcome, doesn't really translate into more women in leadership positions we have and the article quotes only seven percent of the asx 200 companies have a female ceo which is a shocking number or 93 percent of those organizations have a male ceo mm. it's a different way of framing Absolutely. it right it actually makes it more stark you know rather than othering the women let's look at the reality here which is total male domination and that's not just in the AXX 200. I mean, if you look at the highest earning athletes, for instance, in the top 100 in the world, there are zero women. That is, the top 100 
highest paid athletes in the world are all men. And there are Belgian basketball players that make more than Serena Williams. I think that's a startling number. And even if you add technology to that and you look at what's happening on YouTube, for instance, the top earning artists on YouTube are all men. Women get paid less even in those instances. So it's not just about ASX top 200. So not surprisingly, this week there have been a lot of articles that look at gender pay gap. Can we unpack that, Ray? So when we read gender pay gap, I immediately think, okay, women are paid less, but it's quite a nuanced and more complicated phenomenon, Mm. isn't it? Yeah, there's lots of different ways of looking at it. But in Australia, what we typically use to look at the national gender pay gap is using the Workplace Gender Equality Agency's data and definitions that come from the ABS. And that is to look at average weekly ordinary time earnings. So that looks at what does a full-time working woman, a full-time working man earn relative to each other. And what we come up with in Australia is a gap of 14.6% this year. If we actually had a look at earnings total, so what do women and men with bonuses and those undisclosed pays, what does that mean in terms of what the earnings that are brought home in the pay packet? We have a much bigger gap. So it's really best case scenarios when you have apples and apples of full-time men and full-time women together. So that doesn't also account for the fact that many women work on a non-full-time basis compared to men. So it's actually not about what is brought home because of the differential in hours. So it really is best case scenario. Mm. So the drivers for that are quite complex and it goes to the fact that most women and most men in Australia and many economies, but Australia more acutely so, work in occupations and sectors which are stacked towards one gender or the other. So most men work with men, most women work with women. So in areas that are 60% plus of one gender or the other. And unfortunately, many of those professions are lower pay professions like health and education. Absolutely, yeah. So the more feminised an occupation or a profession is, the more undervalued it is. And we have all sorts of evidence that this is the case. So it's the undervaluation of feminized labor, but it's also about the fact that many women work in those very low paid jobs. Mm. So we talk about the glass ceiling as a mm. metaphor for what's going on. I actually think the bigger driver is So glass ceiling meaning so, women. So women can see up through yep. organisations. They can see that they can get to the top, but you actually can't get there because you hit yep. your head at a certain So point. that's the 93% right. men CEOs. Yeah, so that's when we're talking about CEOs yep. or board directorship. That's the glass ceiling. There are just less women who make mm. it up to the dizzy heights. But well, what happens at the other end? So the sticky floor is a much bigger problem. The sticky floor is actually about the bulk of the jobs that are at the lower end of the labour force that are low paid per hour, are precarious, often are quite dangerous jobs too, are jobs that are taken by women. So they're jobs that basically are on minimum wage. There's very compressed wages and there's not much of a classification structure for women to move through. So it's kind of like being stuck at that bottom end without ways to move out of it. Now, the reason why so many of those jobs are feminised is in part about the norms about what's appropriate work for men and women, but it's also about the fact that our organisations still really haven't come to terms with the fact that If we want to try to keep women in the labour force, we should try to keep them at the level to which they're trained. So often what we'll find is that women who can't access flexibility that they might need to combine their working lives with their family lives will choose jobs that are lower paid but actually have an element of flexibility in there. So in a way they step back from those more senior jobs because they're unmanageable in terms of the jobs that are available to them and that make those combinations possible. So 
There's a whole bunch of things going on there. And then there's also the glass walls, which are another really significant issue. And that goes to the issue of occupational and professional segregation by gender. So that's about the feminised or male-dominated So at an economy level, we have problems in the sense that professions are not equally stacked and they pay differently. If we stay within the same organisation, right, we have the distribution problem, less women in leadership positions. The pathways problem. Yeah, the pathways problem. And we often find also in a university context that female colleagues, when they go up for promotion, they're much better qualified often than male colleagues. So there's a skills issue as well. And then there's still the sticky problem that even if we had like for like a man and a woman in the exact same position, even though it might be illegal to pay them different base salary, they might still take home a very different salary because there's bonuses and those hidden elements, right? Right. And what we know is that the more that discretionary pay makes up the pay packet in a sector or an occupation, the greater the gender pay gap. And so that's the story behind the quite large gender pay gap in finance, for example, which has quite a whack of the salary taken home there is in discretionary pay. So the less that there is discretionary pay as a part of the pay packet in an occupation or a sector, the closer the gap is. So having said that, even in those areas where the minimum wage, the award rate of pay is the way that wages are set, we still see a 10% pay gap. Mm. So it's everywhere, but you're right. The more discretionary pay that's available, much more of a gender pay gap exists. So it is International Women's Day and on the future this week, we do look forward. How do we move on from here? What do we do next? Because this is a very complex and complicated problem. We talked about gaps, we talked about pathways, about norms, about education. How do we move forward? I think one of the problems is that it is so complex to try to explain what the issue is. So often people will say to me, what's the one thing we can do to fix this? There isn't a one thing that we can do. So I think it's about having a joined up strategy about valuing women's contribution and not just in the workplace, because what happens in the workplace actually is generated from what happens in other places. So I think it's about saying, what are the dimensions of this problem? What are the drivers for it? And then trying to join up things that are going on in the family. So around who does what care, who steps out of the labour force, who steps into the labour force and the gendered norms around that. It's around challenging what we do in terms of our legislations and the way that we set up our educational institutions, for example, and the norms around what's appropriate for what young women and men should study and challenging that. But it's also about looking at workplaces and how workplaces can make a change in terms of valuing women's contribution and looking at their data to understand what their pay outcomes are and not just doing that as an academic exercise, but actually looking at it to be able to drive change. So I think it's a multi-level range of things that we have to do. And unless we do all of those things at once, I think that we're going to be looking in 2020 at no change again. Well, we will just rerun this podcast then in a year's time, right? Because no need to actually. (laughs) Maybe there'll be some changes. (laughs) Some countries have taken certain measures. The UK now has a requirement that organisations have to publish the gender pay gap and salary levels in certain parts of their workforce. Is that something that we should do in Australia? Does that help? We do. We already do. We do that. Okay. Given that we already do this, why is this not in the media more? And why, Because people why? know. It's not an issue that people don't know. Everybody knows there's a gender pay gap. We don't have to publish it to know. We know. Okay. Let me rephrase this. What is the transparency, the extent to which we can actually drill down into this data? Because aggregate data, as we all know, you lose a lot of the complexity. Right. So do we know 
only the base salaries or do we know the bonuses and all of the kind of things that actually create the problem, mm. right? And can we actually see how that plays out in certain levels? Would I, in my organization, be able to know, for example, who gets what bonus or loading male and female to actually put the problem on the table rather than say there's a gap of 6%, let's check again next year. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So the more disaggregated the data can be, the more nuanced our understanding of what the dimensions of the problem are and the more access we have to the particular levers to make a change. Workplace Gender Equality Agency data, which is our reporting framework, which employers of over 100 in the private sector must do every year, their data is on an organisational basis, doesn't go to the individual unit level. So we know at an organisation level what's going on and we can track that over time. And you look, in many respects, that data is the envy of the world. What would be even more useful, I think you're right, is to go down to that level of the individual to understand what are the really you know, minute drivers that are going on there at different levels of the organisation. But the problem is to know that we have a problem is different from having the data to actually fix the problem. One of the things that interests me is, and I think you've done some research into this, Ray, is the experiences of women who are pioneers in going into very male-dominated professions, right? How do we actually break up what is often a bro culture, a very masculine-dominated profession where it's not really appealing for young women to go into these professions because they'd be very lonely, they'd have little in the way of sharing their experience mm. with others. What do we do about this? Yeah, so we're working on a project at the moment in the Women Work and Leadership Research Group around that very thing, which is women going into hyper-masculine occupations, so where there are 90% men in the occupation. So we're looking at the moment at women investment managers. We are looking at women pilots and also women who work in the auto trades who are trades-trained employees. So across really different sections of the labour force and different training mm. pathways, different earning levels. I can tell you there's an extra naught on the salaries of women in investment management compared to women working in the auto trades. But some of the experiences are quite similar, actually. So it's not all gloom and doom because when you talk to the women who are working in these occupations, and you're right, Kai, they really are trailblazers, they talk about how much they love the technical aspects of their work and the real challenges that are involved. They talk about their capacity to impact more broadly on society. So if we talk about investment managers, they're very conscious of the fact that they hold in funds trillions of dollars that are about the future of our economy and feel very passionately about that. But they also talk about the bro culture and the fact that the entire culture of these organisations seems to be set up around glorifying male traits and characteristics and being unwelcoming to women as the other, in inverted commas. So I think there's a lot of work to do to change that culture. So just flooding more and more women into those occupations doesn't change the culture of organisations, doesn't change the practices around what we value, doesn't change things like access to flexibility around things like care. It doesn't change the fact that a lot of deals are done at the football or done in the pub after work when some members of the workforce can't attend and that exclusionary kind of behaviour. It doesn't change the fact that some men in organisations think it's okay to speak down to women and to insult their technical capabilities. There was a scandal yeah. in Germany a little while back where the largely male workforce in an insurance company would go to strip clubs after work and there would be you know a lot of conversations about work and obviously that would make female colleagues highly uncomfortable they wouldn't join they'd be well, excluded probably lots of men as well right a lot of men would actually feel very uncomfortable yeah and that's also a point that i think we shouldn't forget that the division is not 100 percent 
male, female, because the kind of cultures that we find in these workplaces are quite mm -hmm. offensive to many right. male colleagues as well. Right? And if we frame that as a women's issue, obviously it affects women, but this is not an issue that women need to fix. This no, is an organisational culture problem and it's right. a, about decisions that people make, often men, about what's appropriate behaviour and what's not appropriate behaviour. So, yeah, let's move it away from a women's issue and let's move it into a mainstream professional practice. Yeah, it's a, a cultural culture. issue. Speaking of cultural issues, the big movement of 2018 has been the Me Too movement, and that has been labeled a cultural issue and a big change. Have we really seen change then in culture? I think we are definitely having lots of conversations about the change that we need to make and the types of behaviours that are unacceptable in the workplace. And personally, I think that's a really good thing. I think it's important for a number of reasons, and one of which is I think it says to women you don't need to put up with this behaviour. This is not normal. This is not part of your job. This is not an expectation of what you should have to happen to you when you go to work. And we know that has been a feature of organisations in the past. Whether it's leading to real change in culture and organisations, I guess that's something we need to really think closely about. You know, we have a national inquiry going on at the moment in Australia about the prevalence of sexual harassment and how we might be able to make changes there we've made a submission to that inquiry. But just having a conversation doesn't mean that we're making changes. I think we need to follow that up with action. And again, going back to the issue of whether this is a women's issue or whether this is a broader issue, I think that this is something that senior leaders in organisations need to be taking the reins. Women have said now this is enough. We've suffered through this stuff and we don't want it to happen anymore. It's up to the leaders of organisations to start saying this is a sort of behaviour that we'll accept. This is what we want to happen in our place of work. Is there a flip side to this coin where some of those senior leaders are actually using this as an excuse to maybe not mentor women on a one-on-one -on -one basis because you cannot take them to the pub, you cannot take them to the football pitch, and you certainly cannot stay with them after hours alone in an office? Mm. We've heard a lot of fears in the media recently, you know, depending on which channel you tune into, where this argument is being turned around, right? Where now men are complaining that it's making their lives harder because all of these women are just out to falsely accuse people and to use the Me Too to create problems we didn't have before. What do you say about that? What do I say to that? I say that's bullshit, actually. I think what we need to do is have senior leaders not be seeing the pub as a place where they're mentoring people. I don't think beer mentoring. I think professional relationship in the context of the work that we're doing and what are we trying to achieve? What do we need you to achieve to go to senior levels in the organisation? Also, if mentoring is part of your job, why does that have to happen after hours, right? Right. Look, I'm the last person to criticise. I love football. I love going to the football. But football is not where I go to have conversations about work. Football is where I go to enjoy football. When you so, say football, what do you mean? AFL, of course. Of course. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. So we've established our mutual love of AFL. Australian rules football for our international listeners. If you don't know what that is, look it up. It's great. Get into that. Best yeah. sport in the world, most athletic. And there's actually a great women's competition now. There is. And that's been one of the best things that's happened in the last year is Absolutely. watching the women in the yeah. AFL. But kudos to the AFL for doing the right thing and actually being successful with it. Mm. But let me ask the future question. We've talked a little bit about how to fix the problem, but... Why is this so important? Stating the obvious, of course, there's a fairness issue and it's the right thing to do, but there's also all kinds of other economic issues why we need the future of work to be more inclusive. To yeah, women. right. So I think you're right starting at the rights focus because it's a human rights issue to have men and women, girls and boys, 
treated with equality. And I think we have to start there. Happily, there's also a business case for these things. I think we've got to be careful of going too far down justifying everything we do with a business case, because if it's profitable to underpay women, is that a business case? Do we follow that line of argument? I don't think so. But there is a business case for, especially around things like looking at the impact that diverse teams have about the impact that having inclusive practices at work has for the way that people engage in their work, the likelihood of people to say that they want to stay in employment, and also around key financial indicators around share price, around a range of things. So there's uncontroversial business case argument there in terms of financial performance of organisations. But I think we have to also balance that with the rights issue and saying this is an issue basically of civilization. Mm. And let's take this over into our second story because we want to talk about automation, which has also been a big topic in Australia once again in the last week, which is obviously one of those topics that come back regularly because when we talk about automation, often we hear that machines, robots, AI, they will take a lot of the routine jobs. And as a panacea to that, or as the counter movement, we hear a lot about that we have to retrain into the more creative, the more human, the more empathetic kind of skills, you know, value human relationships. In essence, the kind of more female traits or the kind of jobs and skills that we associate with that if we were to stereotype. So let's take a look at this story and see if we can apply a gender lens here as well. So our second story comes from the Sydney Morning Herald and it's titled Numerous Jobs and Professions Will Change. Up to 6 million could be lost from automation. And it's really taking the same line that we've seen on The Future This Week now for a couple of years that the expected automation of Australian jobs is up to 46% of jobs. And this is based on a McKinsey report that estimates that 3.5 million to about 6.5 million full-time equivalent jobs could be affected in Australia. That is, could be affected by automation, by artificial intelligence, and the disruption in various industries could range from about 16% of jobs in the education sector to about a third of jobs in sectors like transport. The position that the McKinsey report takes, and let's not forget the report's called the Automation Opportunity, is that if seized, this opportunity could add between $1 trillion and $4 trillion to the economy over the next 15 years, providing every Australian with up to $11,000 in additional income. So we should seize this opportunity as quickly and as swiftly as we can. Well, I took a look at the actual report and it's quite glaring how absent technology in this report actually is, right? For a report that is about technology automation, the actual tech is conspicuously absent. The report takes it for granted that we will have, you know, robo-taxis, self-driving cars, robotic managers. In essence, all the kind of technologies that have been in the media recently that we have discussed over the past two years, the struggles, the biases in AI, the fact that self-driving cars don't work, the report just takes for granted that all of this will miraculously appear. In fact, and I quote from the article, automation is an inevitability that holds enormous promise for Australia. So the technological determinism, that's the term that we often use in our discipline, is quite staggering. So automation is something that will happen 
regardless of what we think and do. So it's not a choice. It's not something that we do. It's just something that will happen. And apparently, the best that Australia can do is adopt automation as quickly and as comprehensively as possible to seize the opportunity and then to prepare the country in terms of policy, government, education, society to deal with the fallout in jobs and re-educating people. So in other words, the report actually gives license to managers to automate the shit out of their workforce and then asks policy and education institutions to deal with the rest. Yeah, to clean up afterwards. Absolutely. So I find this a dangerous report, which clearly speaks to a certain clientele and gives them the moral license to engage in automation, not even questioning whether we have a choice in technology, whether these are things that we do and bring about, but just taking this as a force that will happen And then on the back of that does a lot of financial modeling as to what the supposed benefits or fallout might be, which, you know, can be useful. I question whether the assumptions that the report rests on are sound because technology is so absent. So let's have a look at those assumptions. So first, there are some implicit assumptions here about what automation and artificial intelligence is. And you've started talking about how this report views technology as this thing that will just happen and also the thing that will increasingly disrupt industries. But there are actually no good definitions of what we mean by automation or what we mean by artificial intelligence, for that matter, in these reports. In this report, again, as we've seen with all of the reports since the first one we've discussed on this podcast, the 2013 reports coming out of Oxford, we've seen that there's actually no good definition of what work is or what a job is or indeed what tasks are. It seems that every single one of the jobs that are discussed in this report can be broken down into a series of discrete tasks. So, for instance, what an educator does is just a series of tasks that some of which can be automated and some of which are slightly harder to automate. What also seems to be an underlying assumption is that if a task can be automated, it will, right? Well, that's an assumption that the entire report holds, that these are not numbers that will be automated, but that could be. Or should be even, right? In this instance, where this report is actually very pro-automation because at every instance it's called an opportunity and it is framed in terms of financial gains for the society and even for worker wages, then of course there's the pesky inequality problem that society will somehow have to deal with, you know, not much in the way of actual measures are being discussed. The implicit assumption there is that society can deal with this. So for instance, part of this report refers to automation being a significant issue in the mining sector and automating all the jobs in small mining towns will leave the government to basically retrain those people in other areas. But the question is, is that something that is actually doable? And would these towns actually survive a wave of automation that will see 80 or 90 percent of that work being displaced? And we're not saying that this automation is not going to happen because many industries will see significant automation. What we critically question here is, first of all, the bluntness with which this argument is being made, where human agency is completely taken out of the equation, right? That managers just adopt automation as some external force. No decisions, ethical, moral considerations have to be made. And also the way in which automation at work seems to be a fairly uniform phenomenon. Now, Ray, you have done some work around how workers actually see or experience this looming threat of automation. Mm. 
So our report on women and the future of work actually, despite the title, talked to both men and women about issues around the future of work, including automation. And one of the questions that we asked people in our national survey was how concerned they are about different aspects that are emerging in the workplace in terms of a threat to their jobs. One of the issues we asked about was you know, the extent to which they're concerned that they would lose their job as a result of automation. And some really interesting differences emerge across many areas, but one of the things that really stood out was a difference in terms of gender. So a much larger proportion of men are worried about the threat of automation for their jobs. So about 40% of men said that they had some concern about automation potentially leading to job loss for them. Still high, but, you know, less for women, which is more like, I think it's 28% of women said that they were concerned. So interestingly, in terms of the things that workers are worried about, I mean, that's one, but much higher rates of concern around things like the threat of lower paid workers being able to take over their jobs or things like poor management of the organisation in which they're working as being real fears that workers, both men and women, have about job loss in the future. So which brings us back to the point I made earlier in that not all work is the same. Yeah. Obviously, not all professions are the same. And maybe a little bit ironically here, given how automation is a very technologically rich phenomenon driven by new technological developments and the kind of professions that are largely male-dominated, it is also largely male-dominated jobs that are under threat from automation because, as we heard earlier, a lot of female workers work in the more relationship-oriented social professions, nursing, education, with the kind of skills that are often discussed as the antithesis to, you know, the robots coming, empathy, mm. relationship building, social skills, working with customers. So... <laughs> So what are you saying? The robots are coming for men's jobs. <laughs> well, are we women's? solving the gender pay gap by automating men out of these out of highly paid jobs? <laughs> well, that would be one way to deal with the gender pay gap. I'm not entirely sure that I'm in favour of that. But I think we do have to have a gendered sort of nuanced view of all of this. So if we look at the jobs that are growing and are projected to grow, if you look at Productivity Commission figures or you know any projections about where we're going to see significant job growth, it is in health, human services and education. They are highly feminised areas and we're not having a debate about what AI might look like in those contexts or what the impact of that is in those kinds of sectors. So we're not having a conversation about women's future of work. We're having a conversation, again, about men. And that goes to the heart of one of the implicit threats in all of these reports, which is increasing social polarisation and job polarisation. What these predictions are telling us is that what we will automate are basically middle income jobs, analytics jobs, finance jobs, jobs in law versus domestic work, nursing, human services. And if we think about the conversations we've had previously, you will keep those CEO jobs, the 93% male jobs, and you will keep nursing jobs, you will keep domestic works, which are mostly feminized. So we'll keep the glass ceiling, we keep the sticky floor, and we have automation in the middle. Hmm. Is that what we're saying? And so looking at it that way, that might actually not be good news for women in the sense that this upward mobility goes away when we have less jobs in that category. I want to put a slightly more positive spin on this conversation going back to what is often discussed as the other side of automation. I think if the conversation, whether or not automation will happen to the extent that we read in these reports, and I personally don't think it will, at least not in the short term, there will obviously be automation and it is going to be anything that a computer can do 
a computer will do in terms of, you know, the more quantitative jobs that we have. Will AI be this thinking thing that largely displaces human cognition? Probably not. But we often see a discussion now around what are the kind of skills that these technologies can't do? Empathy, social skills, relationship building, creativity, ingenuity, and the kind of skills that are often associated with female traits. So maybe putting more emphasis on this, maybe driving the conversation in this direction might actually help improve workplace culture and having more inclusive workplaces. Or at least this is where the conversation is at, and we read a lot of this in the media at the moment. So, and Sandra is giving me this look. (laughs) Yes, because implicit in what you've said is an assumption that all women are empathetic, kind, caring, and creative. Which is a bit gender essentialist, really. So Yes. Okay. You're wrong. (laughs) Well. (laughs) For the first time on the future this week. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fair point. There's also this technology assumption that will automate away everything boring and somehow all the new jobs that will come up in the wake of this will not be other boring jobs, but will be new, creative, interesting jobs that we should all prepare for. We will put up sandpits everywhere and we will all be creative and happily play (laughs) in the beanbag-infested Google-style workplaces. Or at least this is where the conversation is at. Well, I don't think that's how it's shaping up in aged care or disability care, for example, which is one of the areas that's the fastest growing in the labour market. Exactly. Um, And in fact, what we're doing there is not designing, you know, beanbags and pipe cleaners and design thinking. What we're doing there is designing in a very low wage workforce where there's almost no capacity for training and there's no capacity for engagement between workers in those organisations. So then let me make my earlier point differently. We're not going to all do design thinking. We're not all going to be creative and jobs will not change in that way. But we will have to actually rethink the way in which we value uh, certain types of work. As a society, we seem to put a lot of emphasis and a lot of value and therefore remuneration on analytical skills, on technical skills, but we seem to forget that equally exhausting is emotional labor, the kind of work that is associated with nursing, teaching, emergency service work, where it's often not only physical work, but emotional labor. So maybe a learning from this is not necessarily that we're all going to be in a different kind of job, but that we're rethinking the way in which we value certain types of work. And I agree with you about that being a way forward for the future of work. And happily, that will also address the gender pay gap. And that's all we have time for today. Ray, thanks for joining us this week. Thank you. See you soon on The Future This Week. Next week. Yes, but this week. And I'll see you next year talking about exactly the same things. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This was The Future This Week. Made possible by the Sydney Business Insights team and members of the Digital Disruption Research Group. And every week right here with us, our sound editor Megan Wedge, who makes us sound good. And keeps us honest. Our theme music was composed and played live on a set of garden houses by Lindsay Pollack. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us online on Flipboard, Twitter, or sbi.sydney.edu.au. If you have any news that you want us to discuss, please send them to sbi.sydney.edu.au. Thank you.